We're looking at a, a two-part series that I've called when, when God Gets Your Attention. And really we say when God gets your attention, what do you do? What do you do? The premise is that all of us in here at some time or other have had a moment where God has gotten our attention. We maybe weren't even aware it was God, but he has gotten our attention. For some of us, it's fairly easy. For others of us, it's fairly hard. We began this series even before the series began with a statement um, that God loves you. He loves you. He loves you so much that he made you. And he made you to live for his purposes. And if that's the statement, if that's what we're saying, then there must be a purpose for your life. Your life must have some sort of meaning. I can remember growing up, even even in college, uh, and maybe even after college, I was thinking, what, what, what am I supposed to do? I mean, what... You know, life seems so meaningless. He's got a meaning for your life, for each one of us here tonight. He's got a meaning for it. God wants to use you to make a difference in the world. In the world. The world's a big place, and he wants to use you to make a difference in the world. The question is, how are you going to respond when he tries to get your attention? We looked at Moses last week. We looked at that burning bush experience that he had. And I think the whole front side of your handout is a recap of last week, if I can go through that real quickly for some of you that weren't here. We said that the burning bush experience is this. In the midst of your routine, when you least expect it, you're surprised by God's presence. In the midst of your routine, your ordinary, everyday, walking around life. Just doing life like you normally do. In the midst of your routine, when you least expect it, and by that I mean you come to church on Sundays or you guys on Monday nights expecting God's presence. And that's great. We just saw it happen. But what about Tuesday afternoon at 2 o'clock? What about Thursday evening at 7.30? When you least expect it, his presence shows up. God God didn't point to Moses' qualifications in this experience. He pointed to his own greatness. He said, don't worry about you. Worry about my abilities about what I can do with you. Psalm uh, 91.15 says, when you, this is God talking. He says, when you call on me, I will answer. I will be with you when you're in trouble. I will save you and I will honor you. And then last week's big idea was this. It's not your ability that matters. It's your availability. He could care less about your abilities. He gave you all those abilities, but it's not the abilities that he's after. He wants your heart. He wants your availability. Are you willing to give it to him? Are you willing to be available? And it's probably going to be in an area where you don't have abilities or you have weak abilities. 
then his greatness really shows up. Moses, uh, Moses had some questions for God. He, uh, he said, uh, first of all, he said, who am I? Who am I to do this? Who, who am I to go, let me see what the scripture is, 3, 11, and 12 of Exodus. Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Moses asked God. How can you expect me to lead the Israelites out of Egypt? And, and God answered him, didn't he? He answered every one of Moses' questions. He said in the next uh, verse, I will be with you. I will be with you. And that, that scripture from Psalm 91 is just a clarification of what Moses was saying. I will be with you no matter what. Moses' second question was, uh, who are you? Who are you, God? And God answered it with two words in our NIV Bible. I am. I am. Exodus three thirteen through 14. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. We looked last week at what I am means, how involved it is. Basically, it's the most powerful and most important name of God. The, the name that's used all through the Old Testament that he uses. And then he would add a, a, a descriptive word to it to give people an idea of a different facet of his character. He would say, I am your provider. I am your peace. Whatever the occasion was, whatever the need was, he would add that to his I am. And Jesus did the same thing in the New Testament. Don't we find that all through his teachings? He was su sufficient for whatever the people needed. Jesus was 100% man, 100% God. And when he spoke these words... I think the Jewish people really understood. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the living water. I am the way and the truth and the life. In a world where we say, I wish, God says, I am. I am the one who will meet all of your needs. Now, Moses wasn't quite through with what we looked at last week, trying to weasel out of this burning bush experience. He thought he could get out of this. He was, he was going to be able to ask these questions, and God couldn't answer the question, and he'd get off. You know, My, uh, God could go find somebody else to go to Egypt in his place. He had talked about himself. He said, who am I? He had talked about God. He said, who are you, God? Now he's got somebody else in mind, somebody else that you know. He says, hey, God, I've got another question. I've got a question for you, God. What about them? What about them? What about those people of Israel that you're going to send me to? They might have some questions. Exodus 4.1, Moses protested again. He said, look, they won't believe me. They won't do what I told them. They'll just say, the Lord never appeared to you. 
It's as if he's saying to God, I, I, I really don't want to be difficult, although he had been difficult several, several times before. I really don't want to be difficult, but I've got this bad feeling about what I'm getting ready to get into here. I'm going to go into Egypt and I'm going to say to the people that God told me to set them free. And they're going to say, how do you know God told you to set us free? And I'm going to say, well, I was out in the desert and a burning bush talked to me. And God, it's going to go downhill from there. It's going to get bad quickly. They're not going to believe a thing I say. He had this feeling that they were going to reject him. And it wasn't totally unfounded either because they had rejected him once before. Part of the reason he left Egypt in the first place, aside from killing, be, uh, being afraid of being arrested for killing that uh, Egyptian slave driver, was that the people of Israel had rejected him. So he's walking right back into that uh, fear, I guess, of rejection. The fear of rejection. And it's a huge thing. It's a huge thing for us today, this fear of rejection. I know it is. We've all been there. This idea of them and what they think about us. It's the Rudolph syndrome that we can't get over. You know, what do the other reindeer think? We're always worried about that. A huge thing. And it's serious business. Psychologists throughout the world line their pockets mainly with this problem what do the other people think how am I going to look in their eyes it's really amazing what the they can keep us from doing in our lives what do they think will they reject me will they ignore me Will they ridicule me? What if they don't accept me? Those are huge thoughts for most of us. And it's not just teenagers. It carries over into our adult life. We're worried about what our peers are going to think and say about us if we're different than them. Sometimes it's even people who no longer are around. Sometimes it's that friend that moved away five years ago. Sometimes it's a parent that died 10, 15, 20 years ago. But somehow we still hear in our minds echoing that voice. You know that voice. You've heard that voice. And when you hear me say to you, God wants to do something great in your life, he wants to make a difference and a change in your life. The first voice that some of you hear is them. Them saying to you, you're going to do what? That can't happen. It'll never work. You can't do that. You're wasting your time. What do you do when you're paralyzed by the fear of rejection and thinking what 
they might think of you. And I, and I realize that it's easy for me to be up here talking about this. It's easy for me to say these words. It's hard for you to break out of that bubble that you're in, that paralysis of the fear of rejection. But they're real fears. They're as real as anything else that you might face. And for many people, you've been dealing with them for a lot of years. It's not something that you just started last week. Something that's been around for quite a while. But God's got an answer for Moses here too. He, I told you he had an answer for every one of Moses' questions. Exodus 4.2, it says, They won't listen to me, Moses said. The Lord asked, What do you have there in your hand? A shepherd's staff, Moses replied. So God's answer to Moses this time is really a question. It's not an answer. What's in your hand, Moses? What's in your hand? Now, can you see what God is getting to here? I think maybe by the time we get through with this, you'll, you'll be able to see this very clearly. God's saying, Moses, get your, get your eyes off of them and put your eyes on what's in your hand. What do you have? What do you have at your disposal? Get your eyes off the unknown and focus on the known. Get your eyes off of what might happen or what they might say and look at what you do have and what I can do with it. Look at what's in your hand, Moses. God's talking about familiar things, common, ordinary things that he's going to use to take care of Moses' fears, just as he will in your life. But Moses has to do something. You have to do something. We just can't hear those words. We have to act on those words. And God says, Moses, what's in your hand? I want you to take it, and I want you to place it in my hand. That's his action he had to do. Give it to me, Moses. Now, the answer's on the back of your handout there. I've personalized this week. They're all first person, as if you're saying them. You break free when you realize that I can't give God what I don't have. You hear that? I can't give to God what I don't have. Don't worry about what other people have. Don't worry about what you think other people may be able to give to God. What do you have that you can give to God? Maybe you're can't sing or play a guitar or keyboard like these guys that were just up here. Maybe you can't do that. God's not asking you to give that. Thank goodness. He'll ask you for something else. You don't need to worry about those other people. All you can do and all I can do is to give God what I do have. He expects us to give what we do have not what we don't have. And when we make that choice, it's almost immediate that the, we begin to break through those fears of rejection about them. Exodus 4, 3 through 4, has this uh, back and forth with God and Moses. God said, throw it on the ground, talking about that staff. Throw it on the ground. 
So Moses threw it down and the staff became a snake. Moses was terrified, so he turned and ran away. The Lord told him, take hold of its tail. Now that's where my faith would have kicked out, I think. Take hold of its tail. Moses reached out and he grabbed it and it became a shepherd's staff again. So what's really going on here? Why is God doing this? Once again, he's taking a familiar thing, this common, ordinary thing, this most familiar thing for Moses. He wouldn't, if you're living in the desert, walking around, you wouldn't be caught without a staff. It's used for so many different things. It would go with you wherever you went. He takes this common, ordinary thing that he carried with him every day. And God says, make it available to me. Make it available to me and watch what I can do with it. It was a staff and then it turned into a snake and then Moses picked it up again and it became a staff again. Well, that's pretty neat, isn't it? That staff, that simple stick Moses held out over the Red Sea and it divided into two. And the Israelites walked across on dry land. That staff, that simple stick, Moses touched the Nile River. And the Nile turned to blood. That simple stick, that staff, Moses thumped on a rock and water gushed out of it when they needed water. That's what God can do. He says, this is what I can do. Give it to me. I just want you to put it in my hand and let me use it. And something amazing happens when you and I look at what's in our hands. And, and we say, God, th- this isn't mine. It's really yours. And we realize that everything that we have really belongs to him, not to us. And somehow that fear of them begins to subside. And it does it in at least two ways. There's two things that seem to take care of it. The first is this. I realize it's not just mine anymore. It's not just mine. It's also God's. And if they've got a problem with me, you know, they out there, if they've got a problem with me, then they've got a problem with God. We're in a partnership, God and me. And me and God is a majority. I don't care how many of them there are. The second thing is, I realize that God wants to take the ordinary things in my life and use them in extraordinary ways. In incredible ways. God loves to do that. He loves to do that. Remember he turned a death into a resurrection. God can take something ordinary and use it in extraordinary ways. And and guess what? Who gets the credit? God gets the credit. Not us. And that's the way it was planned from the very beginning. That's exactly what he does in Moses' life. What's in your hand? Moses, give me that staff. And he gives it to him. So my question would obviously be for each of us, what's in your hand tonight? What's in your hand? What are you holding on to? 
What do you need to give to him? It might be an ability that you've been holding on to so tightly that you just didn't want to give over to him. It might be a relationship. It might be a step of faith that you've never made. It might be a failure or it might be a hurt. You know, God can use those things as well in his kingdom work. Those may be the things we're holding in our hands. When we give those things to God, he can use them in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. He takes those failures and he takes those hurts. He takes those hang-ups. He takes anything that we will put into his hands. You'd think after this snake incident, pretty cool thing, wasn't it? After the snake incident that Moses would be through. He wouldn't have any more questions, but no, 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 not, not our boy Moses. Moses has yet one more question, just like Columbo, Detective Columbo in his trench coat. You can see him turning around. He says, God, one more thing. Just, just one more thing, if you don't mind. Moses felt um, that he had to ask God this thing. And he, I, think, I think he thought that this was the coup de grace. It was the big gun. It was the one that God would not have an answer for. Okay, I'm, I, can, I can cut his feet out from under him here. He, can, he won't have a comeback for this one. I just know it. I just know it. I've been saving it. How about, how about this, God? How about this? Well, what is the this? What is the this? That thing in his life where he feels like, I can't serve God because of this. God wouldn't want to use me because of this. Look at what it is. Moses says in Exodus 4.10, Lord, I'm just not a good speaker. I've never been, and I'm not now, even after you've spoken to me. Oh, he said, God, you, you haven't been able to cure my speech. You're not quite as powerful as you have said you are. That's kind of a jab for God. Moses felt handicapped. Speech was his handicap, he thought. And there's all kinds of handicaps we have. Some of you are handicapped by your past. Oh, I hope they don't find out about that. Some of you are handicapped by your past. You feel handicapped, but you're not really. Some of you are handicapped by your education. Either, Either you have too much education and you can't do this, Or you don't have enough education and you can't do this. You you feel that way. You feel handicapped by education, but you're really not. Some of you feel handicapped by your age. You're either too old. They they wouldn't use somebody like me. God, God certainly wouldn't call somebody like me to do that. Or you're too young. He needs somebody with more experience than me. Some of you are handicapped by your health or your emotions or your circumstances. You feel handicapped, but let me tell you, you're really not. 
You know, when you are really handicapped, you're really handicapped when God says, here's something I want to do with your life. I've got something great to do with your life. And you say, nah, I, I can't do it because of this. Just this one thing, you know. It's really standing in my way. That's when you're truly handicapped. But guess what? Once again, God had an answer for Moses, and I think it's the best answer. In, it's my favorite answer in the whole Bible. Exodus 4.11. Moses has just said, I can't talk. I, you know, I'm not. God looked at Moses and he said, Who makes mouths? Who makes mouths? It's as if you think, Moses, that I don't understand that you're clumsy with words. I'm the one that made your mouth. Don't you think I can help you talk? In fact, Moses says in the next verse, 4.12, Moses, I will help you. I'm the one, remember, who made your mouth. God is aware of my handicap, but he also wants me to be aware of his power. And a lot of times, as we just looked at, a lot of times that handicap that I have is in my own mind. It's not truly a handicap. He's aware of your shortcomings. We all have shortcomings. Every one of us here has shortcomings. But he also wants you to be aware of his overcoming strength and power. Some of you may know the name when I say it, Johnny Erickson Tata. Young lady who, as a teenager, was in a diving accident, broke her neck, and she's been a quadriplegic ever since. I had a... Uh, a wonderful opportunity about 15 years ago to go to a conference, a Christian educators conference down in Greenville, South Carolina, and she was the keynote speaker for three days. What a fabulous lady. She can't do anything on her own. Somebody has to, has to go with her, not always her husband. She has a couple of nurses that go with her. But just imagine, she can't get out of bed by herself. She can't even do that little thing with her wheelchair that a lot of people can do because she can't. She has no mobility whatsoever. She can't dress herself. She can't bathe herself. She can't feed herself. She can't do her hair or makeup. She always looks immaculate. Yeah, she's a cute lady. She's written a couple of books. And she's had struggles. She said things like, Is my life worth living? Does my life mean anything at all? What do I do with this genuine handicap that I'm facing? What does it do to my heart? What does it do to my faith? What does it do to my future? All questions that she had. And in her case, she put her future in God's hands. And God's used her to to reach literally millions of people who are also handicapped just like her, and then millions more that are not handicapped, like, like me who saw her at this conference. But early on, here's what she said um, about her struggle and whether God could ever use her. This was her 
big question to herself and to God. She wrote, I wonder how many weeks and months of depression and boredom I could have bypassed had I agreed with God at the beginning that he did have a plan for my life. It's amazing that God continues to work in the lives of stiff-necked, contrary people like me. He just won't take no for an answer. If God is so heaven-bent on using us, even when we resist him, then he must have something extraordinary in mind. Think of it. Think of it. You are worth the effort. You are worth the effort. You're worth the effort of him sending his son from heaven to earth. You are worth the effort of him send, his sending his son to die on the cross for you. That's how much he loves you. You're worth the effort of God bringing you here tonight. See, I don't think any of us choose to do this. I honestly don't. I don't think you chose to come here tonight. I think he brought you here. Maybe to hear one word that I was going to say. Maybe just one. Maybe to come up front and be prayed with. Maybe something yet to happen in the service. I don't, I don't know. But I think he brings us. I don't think we make the choice to come. I never think that we choose a church. I think that God chooses that church for us. Because we're gifted, each one of us, individually in different ways. And he knows what talents and gifts and abilities that church needs to fulfill the mission that he has for it. You're worth the effort of, of God tapping you on the shoulder and saying, I've got something great for your life. The team gets together before you guys get here uh, in a room back here and we Pray for the service. Pray for all of you. Um, pray for each other if there's anything going on. And yesterday morning before the first service, we had one of the ladies that shared. She, she set up the tables, uh, tablecloths, candles, plates, silverware, all that sort of stuff for Alpha this past Wednesday night. And usually she has somebody to help her, but this last week she was on her own. And she was a little frazzled, she said. She finished the tables and went back into the cafe area there to start making coffee. And she was measuring coffee into the filter, and somebody tapped her on the shoulder. And she turned around to look, and there was no one there. She said, somebody tapped me on the shoulder. I think she discovered yesterday, she told me after uh, the first service, who tapped her and what he had to say. You're worth the effort of his tapping you on the shoulder. You're worth the effort of his speaking into your heart. That's how much God cares about you. You are well worth the effort. He loves you. God wants to do something great in your life. I've said that for three weeks running now, and I hope you really believe it. He really wants to do something great in your life. And he ended up doing something great in Moses' life. I, I, I hope you know the rest of the story. 
I mean, Moses really did go back to Egypt. Moses did set the Israelites free. Moses did something that nobody else had been able to do in over 400 years. But I think my big question is, how was Moses really able to do that? What was it that enabled Moses to accomplish what God had set out for him to do? Now, a lot of us have heard those answers that God gave to Moses. I will be with you. We've heard that. We may believe it, we may not believe it, but we've heard it. You shouldn't listen to them. We've heard that too. These aren't new grounds that we're breaking tonight. We're revisiting some. We know all those things. But somehow we just can't seem to break through that fear of rejection. That fear that's got a grip, a paralysis on us. So what was it that enabled Moses to get a different perspective on life? The New Testament talks about this different perspective that Moses had. There's a book in the New Testament called Hebrews. And there's a chapter in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. It's known as the Hall of Faith. It has different characters from the Old Testament that you would be familiar with. And their accomplishments for God. And a, an idea of how their faith actually played out in their life. So we can look at it and perhaps use it in our own lives. And Hebrews chapter 11 verse 26 is the section that talks about Moses. And it says, he, that's Moses, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. The treasures of Egypt. Now, remember, he was part of Pharaoh's household. Everything that Pharaoh had was his. I, I don't know how many of you or if any of you have ever seen the King, uh, King Tut exhibit. My gosh, that's more gold than I've ever seen in my life. That was just a tiny bit of wealth that Moses was exposed to. It could have all been his. He was at the top of his game. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than all that treasure in Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. He wasn't just looking at this earth. He was looking ahead at the eternal reward that Christ had for him setting his claim on that eternal reward and that's what enabled him to break through the fear it wasn't about this it was about that he had his eyes on that there's another thing he was looking at Hebrews eleven twenty seven says he had his eye on the one no eye could see so he kept right on going. He had his eyes set on God. He had his sights 
set on God. So by putting his eyes on God and not on his circumstances that were around him, he was able to have the strength to make the tough decisions and the tough choices. And we have tough decisions and tough choices. Moses was able to make those in his life. And he was able to succeed. This earth that we're living on here, we'll be here 50, 60, 70, 80, maybe 90 years. And if all you've got is this world, you don't have much. You don't have much. The greatest tragedy, I think, would be for you to live this grand lifestyle in this world and totally ignore eternity where you're going to spend the rest of your time. How sad would that be? How sad would that be? Dwight Moody, the great American evangelist and publisher, said, of Moses. Moses spent the first 40 years thinking he was somebody. Then he spent the next 40 years on the backside of the desert realizing he was nobody. Finally, he spent the last 40 years of his life learning just what God can do with a nobody. It doesn't matter whether you feel like a nobody or somebody. The truth is, the truth is the big idea. God wants to do something great in my life. Greater than anything before in my life. You think you've done some pretty good things? Well, God ain't through with you yet. There's tomorrow, and he's got something in store for you tomorrow. Something great, the greatest thing that has ever happened in your life. And if that's going to happen for me, I've got to get my eyes off of the here and now and fix my eyes on eternity because that's what I'm really living for. Not the treasures of Egypt, but that eternal reward. That's what I'm really living for. We've got to get our eyes off of ourselves And fix our eyes on God who loves you more than you could ever imagine. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Never changing, ever true. Thank you for the story of Moses. So distant and so far away so distant in time and so far away and yet so relevant to me and to each person here. And when I don't think I'm uh, like Moses, God, I think I'm like the Israelites. Every time I read that word, Israelites, I think of me. Stiff-necked, contrary, obstinate not listening complaining 
And yet, while we were still sinners, you sent your son to die for each of us because you love us that much. Thank you, God, for your presence, for your love, and for the examples of those in the hall of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. And we read that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, which happened to be a Passover night. They were celebrating a Passover meal. Passover. Hmm. Going all the way back to Moses in Egypt. The last plague that God sent on the Egyptians to try to convince Pharaoh to release the Israelite nation. He says, I'm going to send the angel of death in Egypt and every firstborn in every household will be killed. And you Israelites, kill a lamb and spread the blood on the doorpost, the threshold of the door. And when the angel of death sees that blood of the lamb on your doorpost, the angel will pass over your house. That's the meal that they were celebrating, remembering the night before Jesus' death. I remember he was the Passover lamb.